Pushkin. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Have you ever wondered why you see what you see when you're online? I'm Jamie Bartlett. And in The Gatekeepers from BBC Radio 4, I'm telling the story of how social media accidentally conquered the world. Mark's explained to me he's going for a billion users. I'm going, for what? I'm sorry, what is it you're going to do? They can give us a voice or silence us, whoever we are. At Real Donald Trump, it says, account suspended, everything... To understand how we got here and where it's taking us, listen to The Gatekeepers, available wherever you get your podcasts. For most of this year, I've been sharing some of the interviews I've been doing for background research for my book, Going Infinite, The Rise and Fall of a New Tycoon, the tycoon being Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX. It's been a kind of crazy journey, and this series has been an experiment for me. I've always done these kinds of background interviews, and they're interviews where I know it's not going to end up in the book. I'm just trying to educate myself, but I've never done them on stage, so to speak. And I appreciate you listening in. It's forced me to think creatively about these things, and the experts I've talked to have been really gracious with their time. Well, now the book's almost done, and I have just one more conversation to share, but it may be the most important one I've done in this series. This is On Background from Against the Rules. I'm Michael Lewis. Sam Bankman-Fried faces federal charges of stealing billions of dollars of customer funds. His trial is supposed to begin this fall. But what sort of sentence is he likely to get, really? How are the prosecutors building the case against him? And how can his defense team prepare him for what looks like it will be a really complicated trial? Rebecca Mermelstein is the very best person to answer my questions, short of the prosecutors themselves, who aren't talking to me on background or otherwise. These days, Rebecca's a defense attorney at the law firm of O'Melveny & Myers. But before joining the firm, she was a prosecutor in the very southern district of New York that's prosecuting Sam Bankman-Fried. My father used to practice law, and he absolutely hated it. So I couldn't stop myself from asking Rebecca what drew her to the profession in the first place. I was always the kind of kid who liked to argue the point. But somewhat coincidentally, I was a senior in college. I thought I was going to take the summer off, and my best friend wanted to go to the public interest job fair, and she didn't want to go by herself. And we went together, and I dropped one resume in the district attorney's office paralegal box. Uh And I ended up there, and I uh, fell in love with it. She, by the way, also ended up there and then got a PhD in art history, so it wasn't for everybody. But I, I decided that's what I wanted to do, and so I went to law school knowing I wanted to be a prosecutor. And then I followed that path, and for about uh, 12 years, I was a prosecutor in the Southern District of New York. Um, before we get to Sam Bankman-Fried, I'm, I am kind of curious. Like, why did you fall in love with it and your friend didn't? For me, it is a combination of things. And one is how mission-driven it is. And so 
Um, I think prosecutors and, and definitely prosecutors in my home office, so to speak, really feel that they work in pursuit of a particular mission of pursuing justice, which is a little different than what defense lawyers do, Mm -hmm. because you don't really have a client when you're a prosecutor. Your client is the people of the Southern District of New York, the people of the United States. But your job is to do the right thing, and it's not to win unless you think winning is the right thing. So prosecutors investigate cases all the time that they don't charge. They decide either nobody committed a crime or probably someone committed a crime, but they don't have enough evidence to be sure. And that mission really drives people's, I think, interest in doing it. You know what you reminded me of is the way I hunt stories, that I I will spend all kinds of time on all kinds of things and then just decide there's not a story there uh, and, and move on. If you had to guess, like, what percentage of the things you thought about prosecuting do you actually prosecute? So I would say maybe 80% sort of go somewhere and 20% don't, Okay. if I had to guess. It's a reverse of my process. 20% go somewhere and 80% don't. But it's interesting that you say that you sort of are are interested in this finding the story because I think once prosecutors decide that they um, want to do it, crafting that narrative, making something comprehensible to a jury, distilling things down, appealing to people's emotions, telling a good story is also a big part of um, what lawyers do. And doing it in a live format on a stage is a little more like being a stage actor because when you get in front of a jury, the, the cameras are rolling. There's no kind of redos. There's no pause. And that excitement and that sense that you never 100% know what's going to happen, I think also is something that people who want to be prosecutors think is fun. I have a weird, I have a weird question for sure. you. Sure. I've, I've often found this with, with reporters in, like, newsrooms. Um, I've always been surprised at how they can write quite bland stories about things when they're out to dinner talking about them, they make sound thrilling and fun. They actually have great material, and they, they kind of leave it on the cutting room floor. And I'm wondering if there's a phenomenon like that with prosecutors, where if you're sitting around, they sit around talking about a case, that it would be vastly more entertaining to listen to than what goes on in the courtroom. I don't think so. I think the courtroom is a pretty exciting place, um, mm-hmm. and I don't think they leave things uh, on the cutting room floor that are the best parts. I do think you you will hear prosecutors when they talk about how to structure trial evidence, how to prove a case. They'll use the phrase thin to win. And what they mean by that is a streamlined body of proof. Yep. That, you know, sometimes you have a piece of evidence that, you know, can be used really effectively for the prosecution, but it can be twisted exactly on its head and used for the defense too. Yep. And uh, now, of course, the prosecution is obligated to give the defense all the materials it has, so the defense could call that witness. Yep. But as a strategic matter, the defense really doesn't generally want to call any witnesses because they don't have a burden of proof. So as a prosecutor, you may say, you know, I could call this witness. They have this one great fact, but I don't need it, and I'm opening up a can of worms. And yep. so we're going to we're gonna sort of leave that on the cutting room floor. This is a, this is a, there's a version of this in writing. It's the, the famous E.B. White dictum that writing is about killing your darlings, that, that you have this one pungent thing that you just think has to be in. And in the end, you realize you need to thin to win, that you need to streamline it for, for the sake of the story. And you got to get used to that, that feeling of getting rid of something you just really attach to. Um, you just said something that I kind of knew, but I didn't completely know. Um, is it really true that everything the prosecution has gets given to the defense before the trial? 
So it's a little more of a, I think, a nuanced answer than just yes, but but fundamentally, that is the intent of the various rules that govern disclosure. Mm-hmm. And, and it goes it? in phases. So right. um, there is, if we want to get technical about it, there's a rule um, in the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure called Rule 16 that governs what you have to give to the defense as, quote, discovery materials. And that starts getting turned over as soon as charges are brought. Yep. And that's going to include sort of all the paperwork, right? Every document in the case, every recording in the case, any kind of physical evidence or expert testing. So DNA testing, fingerprint testing, um, all is going to get turned over as part of that. And that requires the production of all statements of witnesses who are expected to testify at trial. And then the third category is impeachment material, which is to say, if you know something that undermines what someone's saying, you have to tell the defense that too. So if, for example, you have a witness who has a perjury conviction, right, you're going to have to turn that over as well. And so it should really be that that the two sides have the same information. Of course, it's a little more nuanced than that. And prosecutors have huge institutional advantages. And they're not going to turn over that witness information until relatively close to trial. When I started as an AUSA, that was turned over the Friday morning before a Monday trial. Oh, my God. That's not true anymore. Now you're talking in a white-collar case four weeks, six weeks out. Right. But even so, that means that If you're a defense lawyer trying to prepare for a white-collar case and trying to decide, should we go to trial, you're not going to know what the witnesses against your client says until very close to the trial. Right. Two questions about this. One is, does the defense have the same obligation to turn over what it has to the prosecution? Uh, No, is the answer. They do have some obligations. So they have to turn over things they actually intend to use at trial. Prosecutors knowing that they can't know until the moment every single thing they're going to use, just turn over all the paperwork in their possession. Mm-hmm. I think the defense has a lot more leeway to say, look, we don't have any burden of proof. We don't know what we're going to do till we see what the prosecution is going to do. And so they get a lot more leeway with that sort of thing. So you don't see it going in both directions evenly. Gotcha. Is it, but is there a way, is there a possibility for the defense to show up with a just total shocker? And the prosecution just didn't see it coming? Yes, I think it is. Okay, that's interesting to me. And the other thing is that this is, I'm just kind of curious, like, how sneaky can prosecutors be about what they turn over and don't turn over? I mean, what is the likelihood that the defense turns up and finds, oh, my God, they've got this thing we didn't know about? Well, you'd like to think it would never happen, but I think that that is obviously not true. You read about things all the time in in reporting about situations where prosecutors acted with malice to withhold relevant and exculpatory information. Right. And then, of course, there's human error, right? I mean, you're talking about, in a white-collar case, millions of pages of documents, and I think people can make mistakes. You know, I think federal prosecutors as a group are are acting with, with careful and good intentions, and so I don't think that there is sort of a pervasive problem of things being intentionally withheld. I think mm-hmm. if you think about, you know, what the universe of documents a person has on their phone, on their laptop, on their Google's history versus what it was 25 years ago, you know, it gets harder and harder to keep up with. Yep. Um, I have two more general questions about prosecutors. And the first is, if, if I spent a whole bunch of time with a whole bunch of prosecutors, what, what would I notice they had in common? 
Like, what, what kind of person ends up in this role? Rule followers, I would say. I don't think there's one type. I think there are lots of types. There are people who really love the law. There are people who do it who love the facts. There are people who love the performance. They're all joined, I think, by that same sense of mission. Mm-hmm. And I think in a similar way as you'd see in, say, a military unit, that kind of this is a hard job and a serious job and an intense job kind of bonds people. And so you'd see that. I think it's a group that takes its job seriously but not themselves seriously. But they're also all people who hold themselves to a higher standard because I think when you send other people to jail, when you make decisions that alter the course of someone's life, you realize that you have to live your own life, I think, sort of above reproach. Stay with us. When we come back from the break, Rebecca and I turn to Sam Bankman-Fried and how prosecutors might argue their case against him. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Have you ever wondered why you see what you see when you're online? I'm Jamie Bartlett, and in The Gatekeepers from BBC Radio 4, I'm telling the story of how social media accidentally conquered the world. Mark's explained to me he's going for a billion users. I'm going... For what? I'm sorry, what is it you're going to do? They can give us a voice or silence us, whoever we are. At Real Donald Trump, it says, account suspended. Everything to understand how we got here and where it's taking us, listen to The Gatekeepers, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm back with Rebecca Mermelstein, a former prosecutor in the Southern District of New York. So can you just explain to me um, your relationship to the office that is actually prosecuting Sam Bankman-Fried? Sure. So I was a prosecutor in the Southern District of New York until August. So I left before any of this started, but not that long before any of it started. And I spent a few years in the securities fraud unit, which is one of the units principally responsible for this case, before um, leaving that to supervise what's called the General Crimes Unit, which is where new prosecutors start and get their training. So I'm very familiar with the institution and with the players, but I don't know, I have no inside information about this particular case. So you, you didn't even hear a whisper of Sam Bankman-Fried being investigated before you left? I did not. Okay. There are a bunch of things I'd love for you to explain to me about the case, but you, you have paid, like, at least casual attention to it. I have. You have. What interests you about it? Well, look, it's it's on the front page of you know, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times on a a regular basis. 
as a matter of scale, it's obviously among the largest crypto prosecutions to date. And I think that the fallout from it right, has real implications for the crypto industry writ large. And so, you know, I think it's something that white-collar practitioners are probably following pretty consistently. Now, here what happened is a little complicated, and you have to back all the way up to the way this played out, which is, you remember the timeline is that in November of 2022, the Alameda financials are leaked and people start to have concerns about what's going on. And the Southern District moves very fast. So by December, they have an indictment against Sam Bankman-Fried. Is that unusual Uh, to move that fast? Very, very unusual, I would say. It surprised you? Yeah, I think it did surprise me. White-collar cases are complicated. It's hard to get things together. And so that speed was more than somewhat unusual for this kind of case. What would justify, in their minds, moving so fast? Or why why would there be such a hurry? I think you can think of a number of reasons they might have felt that they had to move so quickly. The first is Sam Bankman-Fried was in the Bahamas. The United States has an extradition treaty with the Bahamas. So there was the possibility of charging him and having him brought back to the United States. But when you launch a big investigation and you start talking to people and demanding documents, the people you're investigating are going to know you're investigating them. And there's, of course, always the possibility that someone decides, you know, I'd rather live in Venezuela where there's no extradition treaty and just never come back. Yeah. Right. So one possibility is that a concern that you won't be able to arrest the person if you don't move quickly. Yep. The other is the government has alleged that in those final days where there's a run on FTX, investors are trying to pull their money out, that Sam Bankman-Fried and some of his cohort are moving money out of it for their own purposes. Yep. And so if you're trying to protect investors and you want to make sure you stop that, you want to move quickly to sort of charge people and, and start locking down the money. So I think there may have been very good reasons to do it, um, but they did move sort of very, very quickly here. And one effect of that is that they brought an indictment that had very limited description of the charges and also didn't include all the charges that they ultimately decided to bring. And so he gets charged. He agrees to be extradited. He comes to the United States. And then because of that, there's something called the rule of specialty, which basically means that if the Bahamas let, you know, let you take someone from their country based on an agreement that they were going to face a particular set of charges, you cannot add new charges after that happens. Mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting because the party who's wronged if you add new charges is not the defendant under the law. It's the Bahamas. So mm-hmm. the Bahamas can agree to let you proceed on more charges. So what happens here is the government added additional charges twice. They superseded, brought a new indictment with more charges, and then another one after Sam Bankman-Fried had been extradited. And now what's happening is the government has gone back to the Bahamas and said, will you approve this? But that process is going to be slow, and there's been a determination by the Bahamanian court that Sam Bankman-Fried can challenge it and can be heard in the Bahamas. So as a practical matter, it's not going to be done before the October trial date in this case. And the Bahamas has the power to squash all of that. Yes, and the government has said if the Bahamas squashes it, the United States will not proceed. They agree that if that is the decision, then that's the end of it. Um, But if the Bahamas lets them go forward with these other charges, in any case, there will be a second trial, even if he's convicted at the first one? Well, I think as a practical matter, that's pretty unlikely. If you look at sort of what the first set of charges are, and what the second set of charges are, 
The first set of charges are very serious, and they contain the majority of the core criminal allegations with respect to FDX and Alameda. Yep. It's really not necessary, if that happens, to do a second trial, right? Yep. So I think as a practical matter, it's unlikely if the first trial results in a conviction that they will actually pursue the second charges. I expect they'll dismiss them or there'll be a plea agreement, but they'll be resolved in some way. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, I ask Rebecca about the pros and cons of Sam Bankman-Fried taking the stand. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Have you ever wondered why you see what you see when you're online? I'm Jamie Bartlett, and in The Gatekeepers from BBC Radio 4, I'm telling the story of how social media accidentally conquered the world. Mark's explained to me he's going for a billion users. I'm going... For what? I'm sorry, what is it you're going to do? They can give us a voice or silence us, whoever we are. At Real Donald Trump, it says, account suspended, everything... To understand how we got here and where it's taking us, listen to The Gatekeepers, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm back with Rebecca Mermelstein, former federal prosecutor. Um... So if SBF is convicted and he receives the maximum sentence, we're looking at multiple decades in jail, probably the rest of his life, right? Yeah. What's the, like, the range of likely outcomes? Look, you know, Madoff got life, right? That's among the largest scale white-collar frauds to date. And he pled guilty. He, he did not challenge the charges. This case is in front of Judge Kaplan, who I think is seen as a, on the spectrum of judges, probably a more harsh sentencer. I think Judge Kaplan has clearly lost some of his patience with the defendant's conduct, which is not a place you want to be. There are two different sets of rules in operation. One is the statutory scheme that's going to give you a floor and a ceiling on what the possible sentence is. Mm -hmm. Often the the floor is zero. That's what it is here. In theory, the judge could, if he wanted to, give Sam Bankman-Fried nothing. There's no floor here. There's no floor here. So it's really up to Judge Kaplan to do whatever he wants. But... Then there's a thing called the sentencing guidelines, and the sentencing guidelines are a distillation based on, for the most part, actual data of how sentencing was historically done that tries to assign pluses and minus values to various things, and it spits out a proposed range for a crime. It's like Zillow does a house price. It's kind of—I think that's kind of right. So here, right, the the principal guideline is the one that governs fraud cases where there's a monetary loss. And so you're going to have a plus factor for the amount of money that was at issue here. Now here, that seems to be extraordinarily high. Yep. And so it's going to be off the charts, right? The the highest category is if it exceeds $550 million, which I think— chump, That's chump change in this one. I think that's probably right. Yeah. And then there are all these plus values and minus values. How many victims were involved? Did you use what's called sophisticated means? Did you— Um, have a minor role in the offense? Were you a leader in the offense? 
And then you get credit if you plead guilty. You get a reduction if you accept responsibility. And so I think he's looking at probably a range of either 360 months to life, so 30 years to life, or life itself, depending on exactly how the math comes out, which in some ways is unhelpful to the judge because, you know, what does that mean is the right sentence? Uh, But I think he's looking at a long sentence if he's convicted. If you look at comparable um, data points, right, Elizabeth Holmes, someone also young, you know, on the younger side of a white-collar defendant, um, not maybe this scale, but but pretty big. I think he's looking at a long time. What about um, his colleagues, the other FTX executives who've pled guilty? Um, they obviously are in a completely different category because they are cooperating and assuming that they fulfill their cooperation obligation. The average white-collar first-time defendant who's a cooperator in the Southern District of New York I would say, typically does not go to jail. Really? Now, to be clear, right, cooperators don't always get get no jail time. They get big benefits. You may remember famously Sammy the Bull cooperated, having been involved in 19 murders. And I think he got maybe five years in jail. Look, cooperators are always hard because, and here it's clear that they have three, at least three that we know of. Um, and, you know, the problem with cooperators, of course, is that These are people who are going to have to come to court and say, I lied to investors, to to customers, to colleagues. I did it, you know, for my own purposes in some cases. But now I'm telling the truth. Yeah, now is when you should believe me. And, And it's no coincidence that I'm telling the truth now. By the way, I'm also hoping not to go to jail. Yep. And that's hard, right? So, you know, making sure that the jury is is in a position to credit what's being said is always a challenge. Now, I think it's a little easier when you have three cooperators because that line of cross-examination of aren't you just doing this because you don't want to go to jail and aren't, don't you have all these incentives gets a little old the third time. And you really <laughs> you start to think, okay, maybe one person would do that, but do you really think they're all kind of doing it together? That's one challenge. I think the other challenge is, which is always true in complex white-collar cases, is you have to take a jury of 12 people, a real cross-section of the community. And before you can start explaining why this was a crime, you have to give like a tutorial first on crypto and hedge funds and trading and trading algorithms and what it means. And then you have to start explaining why what happened here, you know, as they allege, was a problem and why it was illegal and why these things weren't true. And that's hard to distill a complicated story down to something that everyone can understand. You're telling me. I know. It's, yeah, exactly. I, 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 no, it's, it's um, I have my own way of dealing with this, but I don't envy them. Um, turning to Sam himself, if you were his defense lawyer, what would you be doing right now? How would you prepare him for the trial? Well, there's a big question, of course, which is, is he going to testify, right? Um, and the general wisdom is always don't, because you have an absolute right not to say anything, and it can't be held against you, and you don't have to offer any narrative. And the minute you tell a story as a defendant, the minute you explain your version, even though the judge, of course, instructs the jury on the burden of proof, I really think you lose a lot of that advantage because now there's two stories, and the jury is going to evaluate, well, which one do we believe? And yep. that's that's not the, the burden of proof, which one is more likely. Yeah. And you should really, I think you don't want to do it. Now, sometimes defendants feel, and this can in some limited circumstances be right, 
that the government's narrative is too powerful not to be rebutted in some fashion. There's no way to challenge it except for them to hear from you. And of course, Mm -hmm. testifying is completely up to him. His lawyers can't control it. They can advise him. So one thing I'm sure they're talking about is, is he going to testify? And if you were his lawyer, you would say? I think probably not, but I haven't seen the government's proof. Which you said I never really thought about. But the problem with testifying is instead of them having to evaluate just the government's case, you're giving them something else to evaluate. Yeah. And if the government's case has holes in it, then then as defense lawyers, we get to, to show the jury that. But if your case also has holes, right, that's not a good look. It's easier to poke holes in someone else's story than to come up with a completely coherent narrative. So I think that's dangerous. What else would I be doing? Look, one interesting thing here is that by all accounts, the kind of executive group, which includes the cooperators, was very interpersonally close. Many of them were living together. They must really know each other's secrets. And, you know, if you're going to attack a cooperator, you're not only going to attack them based on small inconsistencies and things they've told the government. You want to know everything about them. You want to really investigate them. The government has cell phones and laptops that belong to the cooperators, and you're going to want to really spend a lot of time looking at everything on those. All right. This was fabulous. I have one last question for you, and then I'm going to let you go. Um, If you could give him one piece of advice right now, what would it be? I think he should probably think about uh, a disposition. What does that mean? If I were him, I'd be thinking about whether or not there was a a plea offer that made sense. Hmm. There are two reasons that going to trial often results in longer sentences. And one is that the guidelines themselves give credit for people who accept responsibility. And so you can think of it as a benefit to people who accept responsibility or as a penalty to people who don't. But Mm -hmm. either way, there's going to be a delta there. And the other is that there is a difference in the way a judge views you, I think, on a cold record, on written submissions by lawyers, and at an actual trial where you're going to sit for weeks and weeks and weeks and read every text message and hear from your ex-girlfriend and your closest friends about the conversations that you had and where victims of the crime are going to come and talk about the consequence of having lost all their money. That's It sort of, it affects judges who are, they're people. Yep. And so, look, I don't know the government's proof and I don't know what defenses he may have, but it doesn't look good, right, from the outside. And I think that um, he's a young person, and his best chance of having a life outside of prison is probably to take a plea. If you were his lawyer, what plea would you, what deal would you happily accept? (laughs) Um, I don't think there's going to be a plea in this case that anyone's happy to accept, is my guess. I, I think that given the nature of federal sentencing, there's an enormous amount of uncertainty in any plea. In any plea agreement, the government and the defense will agree on the charges that are being pled to and what the math is on the guidelines. But all that's going to give you is a range. You'll see that in the Southern District of New York, most sentences are below that range, right? Most judges are less harsh than the guidelines. And you could take a plea and get a sentence that, you know, you felt was too much, and then you're kind of stuck. It's more a holistic assessment of what's likely to result in the least bad outcome. Okay. Thank you so much for the time. My pleasure. Rebecca Mermelstein was once a prosecutor in the Southern District of New York. She is now a defense attorney at O'Melveny & Myers. Thanks for listening to our On Background series. My book about Sam Bankman-Fried, Going Infinite, 
The Rise and Fall of a New Tycoon will be in bookstores this October. And watch this feed. There'll be a new season of Against the Rules before long. On Background is hosted by me, Michael Lewis, and produced by Catherine Gerardo and Lydia Jean Cott. Our editor is Julia Barton. Our engineer is Sarah Bruguer. Jake Flanagan helps us with licensing. Our show is recorded by Topher Ruth at Berkeley Advanced Media Studios. Our music was composed by Matthias Bossy and John Evans of Stellwagen Symphonette. Special thanks to a few more folks who made On Background possible. Our executive team, including Jacob Weisberg, Malcolm Gladwell, Heather Fain, John Schnars, Lital Molad, Greta Cohn. Our business team, including Christina Sullivan, Royston Berserve. Our marketing team, including Eric Sandler, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Narvaez, Brian Sabrenik, Owen Miller published each and every episode. David Glover keeps our office running and Ian Pexa tends to our tech. On Background is a production of Pushkin Industries. Don't forget that we have the website atrpodcast.com in case you want to send me a question or a complaint or anything else. That's atrpodcast.com. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you'd like to listen ad-free, and learn about other exclusive offerings, don't forget to sign up for Pushkin Plus subscription at pushkin.fm slash plus or on our Apple show page. You're investigating. You're issuing subpoenas. You're drafting search warrants. You're interviewing witnesses. That sounds like reporting. I think that's right. I think in some ways that beginning phase is a lot like reporting if reporters uh, had subpoena power and could issue search warrants. Right. That'd be um, fun. That'd be really fun. Well, it's a very powerful tool, right? You really, if you read someone's email, if you can look at everything they've, every Google search they've run, that tells you a lot about what's really happening. I would have so many bestsellers. Well, you have kind of a lot of bestsellers now, (laughs) no? How many many more I would have if I could just hit buttons and gather all that material? Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Have you ever wondered why you see what you see when you're online? I'm Jamie Bartlett, and in The Gatekeepers from BBC Radio 4, I'm telling the story of how social media accidentally conquered the world. Mark's explained to me he's going for a billion users. I'm going, for what? I'm sorry, what is it you're going to do? They can give us a voice or silence us whoever we are. At Real Donald Trump, it says, account suspended. Everything to understand how we got here and where it's taking us, listen to The Gatekeepers, available wherever you get your podcasts.